Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm speaking with Victor Lee, my colleague at the ABA Journal and author of the new book, Nixon in New York, How Wall Street Helped Richard Nixon Win the White House. Victor, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Lee. I appreciate it. So let's talk about the origin of this project, just to kick it off. How did you decide that on top of all your duties as editor here at ABA Journal <laughs> and reporting and, and everything else you do, you wanted to write a book? Well, um, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment in a lot of ways. Uh, probably explains why I was drawn to Richard Nixon. Um, <laughs> now, uh, I've always been fascinated in, in, in Nixon. You know, I always thought that he was a very, I guess, tragic figure in, in American history, and I mean that in like the Greek sense that you know he's someone that really should have gone down in history as one of our greatest presidents. You know, with all of his accomplishments and everything that, that he did in office, and instead he became the only one to have to resign in disgrace. And you know. Obviously, there were a lot of things that, that he brought upon himself. There were some things that were out of his control, but I was always kind of fascinated by that dichotomy. And I always wanted to learn more about him. And I found that his legal career, when he was a lawyer on Wall Street between 1962 and 1968, when he ran for president again, wasn't covered in a, lot of, a whole lot of detail by historians. Like those so-called wilderness years tended to be kind of glossed over, or they would focus on his political activities, like campaigning for Goldwater or um, you know his machinations to try to win the nomination in '68. And I felt like you know I didn't really know much about him as a lawyer. What did he do? How did he function on Wall Street? Did he even like being a lawyer? Like what kind of uh, person he was during those years on Wall Street? And I was just fascinated to try to find out more about it. So let's ground this for our readers who may not be terribly well-grounded in Nixon's pre-presidential history. So this is a time period after he'd been the youngest vice president in U.S. history, at least at that point, I believe, for Eisenhower. And where was he sort of in, in his life cycle? What, what was he coming off of that just made him decide to pick up stakes, leave California, cross the country, and set up shop on Wall Street in a law firm? Gotcha. So he ran for president in 1960, one of the most famous uh, and most well-known presidential elections, probably, you know, in modern era. He ran against John F. Kennedy, a race that really kind of defined uh, that era in a lot of ways. And he lost by the closest of margins. Some say uh, it was stolen from him. Uh, there were a lot of allegations, you know, <laughs> whether or not you believe them or not, that's, you know, the other historians have covered that. But, you know, he could rightfully argue that he, you know, was within a hair's breadth of becoming president. So he loses the race. He goes back to California and practices law for a little bit while he tries to contemplate his next move. And the way things were back then, just because you lost a presidential race didn't mean that you were finished. Now it seems like you lose one time and you're done. But he was still plotting his comeback. He was still a young man. Um, and so he thought the best way to kind of prepare for another presidential race would be to run for governor of California. And so it wasn't a race that he really cared about. He didn't really know much about the state. He had spent his entire political career in Washington, and his passion was foreign policy. His passion was diplomacy, you know, national issues, international issues. He didn't really understand, like, what actual Californians were concerned about. He didn't really get, like, local issues, state issues. He didn't really have much of a power base in that state, despite the fact that he was the vice president. And it wasn't even a race that he even cared about. Like, in the book, it goes into a little bit in detail that he— just kind of seemed like he was running just because he had to. And so the voters, I think, saw through that, and they didn't elect him, and he lost pretty badly. And so, you know, after you lose an election, you're supposed to be 
very gracious, very you know, a good sport about the whole thing. You know, let's move together, let's support the winner and everything. He took the opposite approach. <laughs> he stormed on stage. He was still hungover from you know drowning his sorrows after losing the election. He never had a very nice looking appearance, especially not compared to some of the other politicians at that time, especially JFK. Uh, so he, you know, had his dark circles under his eyes, the big nose, you know, the jowls kind of flapping around. And he tended to sweat when he was under pressure. So, you know, he was very angry, very upset about what happened. And he, you know, had always had kind of an adversarial relationship with the press. And he kind of blamed them for a lot of what happened. So he gets up there, very one of the most famous, like, I guess not so much concession speech, but one of the most famous post-election tirades in the history of America where he goes, you're not going to have Nixon to kick around anymore. This is my last press conference. And it looked like he was finished. You know, he was done as a politician, even though he was still very young and he still could have probably, you know, come back. And what drew him to New York was because, you know, and the book goes into a little bit in detail, like even though he went off on his tirade and he seemed like he, you know, jumped in his own political grave and had, you know, people burying him and whatnot, he never really gave up his dream of being president. And that was really the only thing that he wanted to do with his life. And going to New York in a lot of ways was to try to help bring about his ultimate goal, which was to become president. And being a lawyer at a big law firm would give him the opportunity to travel the world, engage in like his own kind of diplomacy, like not sanctioned by the, by the country, obviously, but you know, he had good relationships with a lot of heads of state. You know, he tried to lobby some of them to become his clients. So this allowed him to still kind of be in the arena without having to actually be like an actual combatant. And that would kind of give him the best of both worlds. He'd make some money. He'd meet some influential people. He'd get his name in the papers in a positive light. And this was kind of like his way to kind of rehabilitate his image so that when he did try to run for president again, he would be in a much better position. So he had this goal. He had this strategic plan, but he needed to find a law firm that would suit his purposes. So let's shift now to talk about the law firm that he went to. Can you give us a little bit of background on them? And then also, what was it like to work at a law firm with Richard Nixon? Well, the law firm that he went to, well, you know, and <laughs> this is something that, that you learn when um, you write about law firms. You know, they have a lot of names, but very often those names change throughout history. So when he joined, I think it was Mudge, Stern, Baldwin, and Todd. Uh, but then they they had to rename the firm. They named, renamed it Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander. <laughs> uh, but the roots of the firm uh, went all the way back to um, uh, the 1800s, where basically they were a firm that did a lot of kind of corporate work in New York. They represented banks. They represented wealthy people. But what happened was um, prior to Nixon joining, they had kind of hit a slump. They had like a change in leadership. They had some older lawyers retire, and some of the new lawyers were still trying to get up to speed. And so there was kind of a period where they weren't bringing in the kind of clients that would make them competitive on Wall Street. They weren't attracting the right caliber of of lawyers, you know, like the cream of the crop. And there was even a kind of a mean rhyme going around the uh, Wall Street law firms about them. Was it? Yeah, they were they were known as mudge, sludge, fudge, and won't budge because they were kind of seen as being stuck in the mud, kind of like a firm that was stuck in the past, like kind of living off its old glory and not really doing much to um, get ahead. So the feeling was they needed like someone like Nixon to come in who would be able to use his 
political connections, his business connections. He knew heads of state all over the world. He knew heads of businesses all over the country and all over the world. He's the kind of guy that when you call, you know, they try to call you back immediately. Um, if not, you know, jump on the phone immediately and talk to you. So he was someone that opened a lot of doors for the firm, someone who could bring them a lot of business and a lot of clients. He didn't try any cases while he was there, except for one, which was the Supreme Court matter. But he was really there just to bring in business. Like he traded a lot of his reputation to bring in people that he was already friends with and also bring in people who, um, you know, wanted to get close to him and wanted to get close to the firm. Because, you know, even though he was no longer a quote unquote politician, he was still actively involved in politics. Like he was always being quoted in the papers. He, you know, was always traveling to some foreign country and saying something. He was always out campaigning for people. So he was still very much in the public eye. And the firm kind of took the position that, well, if he's out there promoting the firm and he's out there promoting our interests, then that's a good thing for us. So you have a passage in the book that sort of talks about his style as a rainmaker. And if you wouldn't mind reading that for my listeners. Sure. Uh, there was a quote from Nixon, but I'm not going to do his voice because I, I'm just <laughs> not good at that. So there's a chapter in the book that talks about what he did when he got to the firm and how, how it led to expansion and you know increased money and whatnot. So it starts, Nixon was hardly the only rainmaker at the firm, but he quickly established himself as one of the biggest. Almost immediately after his arrival, several of the firm's existing clients, like Elmer Bops's Warner Lambert and Studebaker, started sending most of its work to Nixon Mudge. Nixon also proved highly adept at bringing in new clients. For the young lawyer that wonders how business has gotten, it isn't done always directly, Nixon said. It's a matter of fact, the most effective way is indirectly. For instance, he recounted that he would often go to dinner parties, meetings, or other social events with prospective clients, and he would never bring up business or legal representation. As time goes on, when they need representation, or when they want to change the representation, they will think of you, Nixon said. In all my time when I was either with Adams Duke, which was his firm in California, or Nixon Mudge, I have never asked anyone for business, never. And I think that's the most effective way to do it. In private, Nixon was far less charitable. I never realized how easy it is to make money, he said. I just got $25,000 for telling a bunch of stupid jerks something they could have learned from the newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> As one partner explained to Hoffman, he was a, a journalist who wrote a lot about the law firms at that point, corporate executives have an almost childlike enthusiasm for celebrities. And Nixon was one of the biggest. Some of them simply wanted to be able to brag. You remember my lawyer, Dick Nixon, don't you? You mention in the book, you know, a number of clients that he brought in, cases that he handled because of his political work. But one that I thought was kind of a good summation of representation of the kind of wheeling and dealing he did was with PepsiCo. And his relationship seemed to definitely predate his time at the law firm with, with PepsiCo. Can you tell the story about um, Nixon and Khrushchev and Pepsi and, and how all that went down? Sure. Well, um, as you mentioned, Pepsi was probably his biggest client and was arguably one of the reasons why he landed where he did. So let's rewind back to um, when he was vice president. He went to Russia for, uh, for a summit uh, representing the United States, and he got into a very famous, I guess, debate, for lack of a better term, with Nikita Khrushchev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union at that point. They were at an exhibition in Moscow. Uh, it was an American-style exhibition where they showed 
you know, this is what an American kitchen looks like. This is what, you know, <laughs> uh, this part of America looks like. And, and there were some sponsors there that were from America, including Pepsi. And this was, you know, talking about cultural awareness and whatnot. You know, at that point, the two countries were striving for peaceful coexistence. They weren't, you know, quite pushing each other to the brink anymore like they were under Truman and Stalin. So, but despite that, there was still some animosity between, um, between, between the two. And so at one point, Khrushchev started, you know, started gesticulating very wildly at Nixon and making, made it look like he was berating him. Um, and Nixon kind of, you know, gave it back to him, kind of thrusting his finger at him. And it looked like they were arguing about the merits of capitalism and versus communism. And they were talking about it, but it wasn't like they were at each other's throats or they were, you know, you know, this is like a, <laughs> like a, like a formal debate or anything. It was just more just along the lines of, well, you know, capitalism is better because of this or communism is better because of that. But it got a lot of publicity, got a lot of press. And at one point during that expo, Nixon steered Khrushchev over to the Pepsi booth. And Nixon and Don Kendall, who was the CEO of Pepsi, they were friends. And so, you know, Nixon had told Kendall in advance that he was going to try to get Khrushchev to drink out of uh, uh, a, a can or a bottle of Pepsi. Uh, the show, the, the leader of the Soviet Union enjoying a soft drink. So he did do it. And, you know, Khrushchev did drink the Pepsi. There were two different versions. There was an American version of Pepsi and a Russian version of Pepsi. He preferred the Russian version, obviously. <laughs> but still, the image of Khrushchev drinking Pepsi, that's, that's a big deal, you know. You know, in a in a communist dictatorship, if your leader is drinking something, you know, you're all going to drink it too. So that PR was priceless for Pepsi. You know, it did wonders for them. Uh, they were able to negotiate, I think, uh, an exclusive deal with the Soviet Union, which effectively locked Coca-Cola out for decades. So Kendall was very grateful to Nixon for making that happen. So when Nixon was on the market looking for a law firm, Kendall let all the law firms know that if they hired Nixon they would get Pepsi as a client. And that's, you know, multi-million dollar client walking in your door just because you're going to hire Nixon. So that was a big factor in Mudge's decision to go with Nixon because they knew they would be getting not just Pepsi, but they would be getting like any other client that Nixon brought in with them. And he brought in quite a few. And as you talked about in the book, the majority of his work for the firm was in building business, was in increasing the profile, was in recruiting good attorneys. But there was one exception where he actually did some legal work. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that case and how it went down? Sure. Um, so the case was time. It's known known today as Time versus Hill. Um, basically, what it was was there was a, a very celebrated case where several prisoners escaped from jail. Uh, they staged a uh, you know a very daring escape where they like they strung together some <laughs> they strung together they, they they made a makeshift ladder out of like. You know, various pieces of pipe that they found. I don't know why pieces of pipe were lying around in the prison, but that's seems like that's, an oversight. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and they staged a, they staged a very daring escape. They broke into somebody's house and like held the family hostage for, you know, for for several hours before they finally absconded. This matter was very famous. It got a lot of press. Uh, they even made a Broadway play and a movie out of it. Uh, it was called The Desperate Hour, starring I think Humphrey Bogart. So what happened was, um, you know. It got so much publicity, everyone knew about it, but the family that it happened to hated the fact that they were now celebrities. They, they never asked for the publicity. They didn't, they didn't ask to be in the spotlight. And actually, they claimed that the play in the movie distorted the facts of what happened. You know, They said it was a very uneventful thing. The escapees were very courteous to them. They were very honorable. They didn't threaten them or you know, try to kill them or you know, do anything else. But you know, the movie and the play, just to try to... Uh, and it was novel too. I'm sorry. Um, just you know, to try to wrap up the drama, they added some you know 
violence, some uh, like a threatened sexual assault and things along those lines just to, you know, make it more interesting. So they were furious when Life magazine, which was owned by Time, Life at the time was probably the most popular magazine in the country because of their photographs and because of just the journalism that they did. So they published a story that was billed as they were recreating parts of the play, which they claimed was an accurate representation of what had happened. And so the Hills, which was the family that, that this happened to, were furious. And they were like, that's not what happened. You know, this is portraying us in a false light. Uh, and so they sued. And ordinarily, Wall Street firms would not represent a family like the Hills. Just, you know, they, they tend to represent corporations, very wealthy, very um, famous people in the Hills were, you know, it's a regular family that hadn't asked for any of this. So the family happened to know the senior partner at the firm, this man, uh, Randolph Guthrie, who was actually Nixon's mentor when he was at the firm. So he agreed to take the case as a favor and gave it to Leonard Garment, who was one of their star litigators at the time. So Leonard Garment um, and his team of associates, they, they shepherded the case through the trial courts and then through the appellate courts. They got a favorable verdict. There was some stuff happened on appeals. They had to retry the case, and then they had to like re-argue it for the appeal. So this case kept around for a long time, and then finally it went to the Supreme Court. And once it got to the Supreme Court, Garman came up with this brilliant idea. He goes, I'm going to give this case to Richard Nixon. <laughs> and just, just the briefest of detours, these two were kind of an odd couple, Garman and Nixon, but they did have a friendship despite a lot of differences. Could you do just a really quick... Sure. Garman was his best friend at the firm. He was a Jewish Democrat from Brooklyn, so very much the opposite of Richard Nixon, who Californian... Uh, you know, hates Democrats, <laughs> arguably, you know, as we saw through with his tapes later on, not a friend of, of Jewish people. Garment had also been very active in Democratic circles. Like he, he, held a, he held a fundraiser for Bobby Kennedy in his house. So, you know, very much someone who would not ordinarily be drawn into Richard Nixon's orbit. But You talk about how when he sort of introduced himself once Nixon came on board, he was like, by the way, just to let you know, I did vote for Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> Which Nixon said he was okay with it. I mean, I've, yeah, and, and the book goes into this in, a little bit, but you know, Nixon kind of saw the benefits of having someone on his staff in his orbit that wasn't you know, exactly like him or came from even the opposite side. It showed that he was someone who you know, could win over, win over his detractors, someone who, you know, despite their differences, you know, he could still be someone that would be able to befriend someone like garment, even though, you know, at face value, they would seem to have nothing in common. And one of my favorite parts of their friendship, as you describe it, is that this was astonishing to me. They used to have little jam sessions together. <laughs> well, garment was a clarinet player and he was actually a very, very good one. Like he almost went pro. Like he played in a couple of bands at the time and he was known as someone who, you know, could handle, who could handle his instrument, so to speak. And Nixon played piano. He wasn't, he wasn't a great pianist. Um, you know, I'm not really in a position to judge his piano playing skills, but if you go on YouTube and Google Richard Nixon piano, there is a clip of him playing on the Jack Parr show. He's not bad. Um, and so they would have little jam sessions where he would play piano and Garment would play clarinet. And that was another way for them to bond. And so Garment brings Nixon in. He has this bright idea. Hey, I've had this case this entire time. I've shepherded it all the way through to the Supreme Court, but I want Nixon to take over. So what happened next? Well, and that was stunning in a lot of ways because, you know, and I think most most lawyers, who, um, you know, out there, if, if, they, if they were sitting on a golden ticket like that, 
there's no way they would give it up. I mean, how many lawyers get to argue before the Supreme Court in their lifetimes, let alone on an important case like this? But Garmin uh, was bored. You know, he, he enjoyed being a lawyer. He enjoyed being at the firm. But he kind of felt like, okay, I've done all this stuff before, even though he hadn't argued before the Supreme Court. But he wasn't really interested in pursuing that life anymore. And he wanted to do something more, like something a little political, like, you know, maybe a little more, you know, similar to what, like, you know, you would do in the public sector. And so he kind of saw Nixon as his salvation. Like, okay, if I get close to this guy, you know, if I can prove that, you know, uh, I'm indispensable to him, then maybe, you know, if and when he runs for president again, he'll keep me in mind and he'll help me out. So Garmin gave him the case because he thought, well, this would be a good platform for him. You know, he's at this point, you know, I think it was, this was a year or two before um, before the 68 election. It was pretty clear to everyone that he was going to run again. And this would be a way for him to demonstrate his skills as a lawyer, demonstrate, kind of show that he was at the top of his profession. But also, you know, the facts were very compelling. Here he is standing up for the little man against this big, bad, evil press that he himself has felt victimized by. Uh, so it's a very, it was a very compelling narrative. And, you know, he could present himself as, you know, someone who would fight for the little guy just like he would, like he would, he would do it in Washington, just like he did, you know, for the Hills uh, uh, before the Supreme Court. So, um, so that's how he got the case. And ultimately, there's, there's a lot in there about the case and the argument and whatnot. But he came very close to winning, but ultimately he did not. And, you know, as reporters, I think that we appreciate that part of libel law. But um, <laughs> Garmin knew or had an idea that Nixon was going to go on further. And he was not the only one at the law firm. And Nixon Mudge became this interesting little incubator for the Nixon 68 presidential run. So it, it really does seem like Nixon was right on in thinking that that going to a law firm would be a good stepping stone. But can you kind of describe how the law firm supported Nixon in the 68 bid? Sure. Sort of the recurring mantra of, uh, at the firm was, you know, if it's good for Nixon, then it's good for the firm. So they gave him a lot of latitude. You know, if he wanted to take time off to support uh, Barry Goldwater's ultimately doomed presidential campaign in 64, he crisscrossed the country campaigning for Goldwater, even though everyone knew Goldwater was going to lose in a landslide. You know, maybe at some firms they would have been like, well, why are you why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting our time doing this? But they understood that he needed to be out there. He needed to be to have his face and his words in the paper and whatnot. And plus, he was collecting favors from people because the Republicans that did win, they would owe him. And he was, you know, going to cash in on those chits at some point. But other ways that the law firm helped him were, you know, law firms are very abundant in certain things. And one of them is, you know, young talent, and especially on Wall Street. And so... um there were like a lot of young, talented lawyers at that firm, uh, including John Sears, who uh, became a, a very, very well-known political uh, operative. He ran Reagan's campaign at one point uh, when he became president. Tom Evans, who I quoted from a lot in the book, he a lot of his material, he kept a lot of material and a lot of um, a lot of papers detailing his time with Nixon. He was planning on writing a book before he passed away, and I actually reached out to his family and his um, his daughters to see if I could go through his papers, and they were very gracious and very kind. And, you know, I also made sure to check with them to make sure they, they, they weren't going to publish anything posthumously or they didn't want to, because I didn't want to tread on any toes, but they were like, no, just go ahead and take a look at the papers and see what you find. So he kept very detailed records about his interactions with Nixon, but he was another one of those guys who did everything for him as far as, you know, researching things that needed to be researched, as far as doing a lot of legwork for him, interacting with people that, you know, he 
wouldn't have time to because one of the knocks on Nixon in the past as a campaigner was that he was a micromanager. He would just, you know, do everything himself. You know, when you're running for president, you can't do that. You have to rely on your underlings to an extent. And so the firm was very good at kind of making sure that they took care of like a lot of the details that, um, you know, they could take care of, leaving him to focus on the big picture things. And the other thing that they did was they were very accommodating at, you know, hiring people that he wanted to be hired. Like Pat Buchanan worked, uh, you know, was, was hired by the firm. He's not a lawyer. You know, he doesn't have a degree, but he could write and he could research. William Sapphire, very famous, uh, <laughs> very famous uh, journalist. He also didn't have a law degree, was not a lawyer, but also but he was someone that could write, someone that Nixon wanted on his staff. And so, you know, these are people that, you know, helped him kind of become the candidate that he became in 68. And the firm, you know, did a lot of work in making sure that those guys were in place to help him. And then probably the biggest thing was that when they merged, uh, there was a merger that they conducted with John Mitchell's municipal bond practice. And John Mitchell became Nixon's campaign manager and eventually his attorney general. And that was uh, a really big step as far as giving him the guy that would help him, that would help guide him to the presidency, someone who could deal with all of the little things and keep him kind of walled off from having to, you know, insert himself into things that didn't really matter or didn't concern him. And, you know, Mitchell was someone who, you know, had a reputation on Wall Street, was very well known, was very well connected in political circles. And he was someone who, when he came aboard, almost immediately gravitated into Nixon's orbit because it was pretty clear what what they wanted to do. So obviously this was successful for Nixon. In the 60s, it worked. And certainly many of our politicians today are lawyers. But do you think Nixon's playbook on this is something that could be replicated today? Do you think that today's law firms are good launching points for people who want to go into politics? Uh, (laughs) I mean, I feel like so much has changed. You know, first of all, anyone who tries to make predictions about politics today considering what we're what we're what we're dealing with uh, and what what has happened over the last couple of years, I think you're you know probably asking to be proven wrong at some point. But that being said, I don't know if this is a sustainable model. And the reason why I say that is because Rudy Giuliani tried it. You know, Rudy Giuliani is someone obviously in the news right now. You know, he was a summer associate at at Nixon Mudge. You know, there's no record of him meeting Nixon. Uh, I mean, you know, he would have met him if the usual, you know, partner, summer associate lunch, but there's no actual, like, documentation that they met. But, you know, Rudy Giuliani was there. He worked at Nixon Mudge for a summer before going off and doing his own thing. He tried to do this when he ran for president in 2008. He partnered with an AMLA firm in Texas. They were then called Bracewell and Patterson. Now they became Bracewell and Giuliani. He tried to do the same thing. He, you know, went to a law firm hoping that he could take advantage of the law firm's connections, keep himself in the news. The chairman of the firm was a very, very well-known and well-connected fundraiser in Texas who, you know, was very close with the Bush family. So, you know, he thought this was a way for him to stay in the public eye and then also prepare for a run for the presidency. He denied it at the time, obviously. But, you know, subsequent events proved that that was pretty much the reason why he went. And, you know, what happened was when he tried to run on his record, in addition to the stuff he did when he was mayor, people asked him about his firm's representation of controversial clients, countries that weren't necessarily allies of this country, like China. That wasn't what sunk him, obviously, but it didn't help. Throughout these last couple of years, there have been other politicians, like Ted Cruz is another one, whose law firm's record was used against him. At, um, um, I mean, they represented a couple of companies in China. They represented 
you know, he had a couple other representations that, you know, people tried to use against him in debates or in political ads and whatnot. And again, that wasn't why he lost, but it didn't help him. So in this day and age where law firms have to do so much business with countries like China, Russia, countries in the Middle East with, you know, especially like oil companies and whatnot, it's difficult to kind of avoid those kind of charges where it's like, oh, well, your law firm helped uh, <laughs> help China and they're our enemy and your law firm helped Russia and, and doing this. So it's not something that's going to sink a candidate, I don't think, but it's not going to help. Not only that, politics has changed to the point where you don't really need, you know, what made Nixon so unique was that he was a private citizen at the time he ran for president. You know, this was his platform. This was his base. He didn't hold elective office. And that was a rarity at the time because, you know, the thinking was you needed to be, you know, governor or senator or something like that. But what these last few years have proven is that with a 24-hour news cycle, with social media, with just things like that, you don't you don't need to have that platform anymore where you need like a law firm or you need like, you know, elected office. I mean, someone like Donald Trump can get elected just by being famous. Mitt Romney, you know, he wasn't working for a law firm at the time he ran for president. He wasn't governor anymore, but he was in the public eye enough that he was able to still, you know, win the nomination. So I don't think that this model is necessarily something that could work today, but you never know. And then obviously, you know, this book was written about his time in New York and with this law firm, but I'm sure it's not the first time you've been asked because it's in the news. A lot of people look at Nixon's presidency. They're comparing it to Trump's presidency to this point. And I believe you, I mean, you started work on this book a long time ago and, and before Donald Trump became the president of the United States. Do you see a lot of parallels or do you think that it's something that we just, we rush to just because we have, you know, only 45 people to compare? There are definitely a lot of parallels. You know, both men have a lot in common. I mean, they're, they're very thin skinned. I mean, that was, that was one thing I had known Nixon was thin skinned, uh, just you know, by reading about him. But it was almost a little jarring just to really do research into him and find out just how thin-skinned he was. There's a quote about him where I think it was, um, he didn't necessarily want to go to the dance, but he wanted to be asked. So he was one of those types who, you know, even if he claimed that he didn't care what people thought, he did. Um, you wouldn't really be in politics if you didn't. But to an alarming degree, I mean, just the way that he attacked the press is very, very, I mean... It, you could argue Trump pretty much just copied that playbook. I mean, he's not the first politician to do it, but I think he's definitely the first politician to do it on such a wide scale uh, and someone who has been able to really, you know, weaponize it in a lot of ways. I mean, the 68 election is fascinating. A lot of people have written about it, and that could have been like a whole <laughs> separate undertaking. But the fact that like just even the way the way Nixon ran, you know, us against them, you know, the silent majority, law and order, you know, these are all very reminiscent of themes that Trump used to get elected. And the difference is that when, you know, when Nixon got into office, he, you know, he still paid lip service to that, but then he did his own thing. I mean, he actively courted Southern voters, but then he, you know, quietly desegregated schools and enforced, you know, civil rights directives and whatnot. Um, you know, he arguably expanded the size of the government, you know, uh, creating the EPA and things along those lines. And even though he campaigned as like a real hawk, especially on Vietnam, he, you know, after escalating the war for a little bit, he then, you know, tried to bring about withdrawal and whatnot. So I think the difference is that Nixon is someone who would say what he wanted to say in order to get elected. But then once he was in office, he had a very clear 
idea of what he wanted to do and how he was going to do it. Whereas with Trump, you know, and again, you know, <laughs> I don't pretend to have any kind of insight into his thinking, but he seems like not only someone who's more haphazard uh, with the way he goes about doing things, but it's almost like, you know, he, he'll say what he needs to say to get elected, but then you don't know if like what he's doing is part of the plan or if it's just something that he's reacting to or if it's something that, you know, he's just kind of inventing on the fly. I mean, it'll be interesting to, to, to see when the scholarship on him comes out. But I definitely think that there are clear parallels in the fact that they were so obsessed with leaks. I mean, I mean, I think John Dean said recently that Watergate really started because of an obsession with leaks and the way that, you know, the Trump administration is just just leaking and they can't control it and they're so angry about it and they're so obsessed over it. That is very reminiscent of what happened with Watergate. Well, Victor, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library with your book, Nixon in New York, How Wall Street Helped Richard Nixon Win the White House. And for my listeners, if you want to read an excerpt, go to the May issue of the ABA Journal and an excerpt was published in that. Uh, Where else can people either buy your book or read more of your work or get in touch with you, Victor? I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, Everyone is these days, but (laughs) I'm on Twitter. uh, Victor Lee 2000, V-I-C-T-O-R-L-I-2-0-0-0. The book is published by uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University Press. Uh, It's available on Amazon for a very hefty price. So uh, (laughs) uh, request it for your library. There we go. All right. Well, thank you to Victor. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Please rate, review, and subscribe with your favorite podcast listening service.